You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Consumers, a lot of them waited till uh, I think it was July to file taxes. There were a lot more opportunities to impersonate them and file false returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Robert Capps. He's from New Data Security. We're going to be talking about what businesses can do to bolster their protection against tax fraud. All right, Joe, uh, before we get into our stories, we have some follow-up this week. What do we have here? Dave, I wanted to talk about a story I saw on Wired about two weeks ago. We saw a, a story, I think it was your story, that you talked about a bizarre loader scam that used a phishing email to say you were about to be charged for some book service. Mm-hmm. I believe it was called World's Books or something mm. like that. Uh, well, this article in Wired talks about a scam so similar it pretty much has to be the same group. Okay. Right? But <laughs> right. they're using a new hook, right? Hmm. And it's a totally fake streaming site called Bravo Movies. Oh. And if you go to the link, you'll actually see, like, broken English, terrible movie titles. It kind of looks like a streaming site. Okay. Uh, but the, the scam is exactly the same. You call a number to cancel your $800 service, which you didn't order. Right. <laughs> and they walk you through the same process of installing Bizarre Loader. Okay. So, same scam, different hook. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to our stories. Why don't you start things off for us? Dave, my story comes from a listener named Jason. And Jason actually is friends with a reality TV star Hmm. uh, who was on The Amazing Race. Her name is Liz Hunt. Okay. And uh, she was trying to sell a gold bracelet on Facebook, Facebook Marketplace. Okay. And somebody tried to scam her out of the gold bracelet. Hmm. So he sent me the transcript of the Facebook Messenger application because here's how this works. You put something on Facebook Messenger and then you start exchanging messages with the person through the Facebook platform about how you're going to pay for it, how you're going to get it there. And this person calls themselves Anthony Wing. And the first thing they do, of course, is they say, hey, is this bracelet still available? And she says, yes, it is. And then he starts asking some interesting questions like how long have you owned it and where are you located? Hmm. And she answers these questions. And he says, are you in the USA? And about what will the postage fee be? So we start to set her up, and he says, uh, I'll include an extra 100 bucks for shipping, and I'll send you the payment now. But then what he does is he spoofs some emails because her PayPal account is, is an email address, right? Yeah. Right? So he has the email address, and he sends her an email from a fake account that looks like it's PayPal, that looks like PayPal is saying somebody has paid – $3,800, and that account is on hold until you enter a tracking number. Oh. Or that amount is on hold until you enter a tracking number. Huh. I haven't heard of this specific scam before, mm-hmm. but this is a really clever scam. And then he starts getting insistent that she send him the bracelet, right? He's not belligerently insistent, but he's like, okay, I, I've sent you the money, and it's sitting there in PayPal, even though he's never sent it. And he, he sends her address, and she says, okay, I'll send it tomorrow. But fortunately— For Liz, she is friends with our listener, Jason. She goes to Jason and says, this is starting to throw up a couple of red flags for me. Mm. So Liz sent a payment request to this Anthony guy. 
And Anthony sent back fake emails that looked like the money had been deposited. Right. And it, it looks like it's it's sort of in a, a type of escrow even. Right. Which, exactly. Which could give you a, an additional false sense of security. Uh-huh. 100%. Yeah. And Jason says, uh, it says that I sent the request, but I don't actually see anything has been sent from you looking at my PayPal account. And the guy goes, what do you mean? Then Jason notes that the next messages came in like within three seconds. Hmm. Right? In other words, this guy's just copying and pasting. Oh, he's got a whole series of scripts. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so now I'm picturing somebody who has, you know, a couple dozen windows open who's just click, 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 click. Yeah, click, out there, out right. there scamming people. Right, right. He says, I want you to know that for some security reasons, some sellers do not ship once they get the money. So PayPal has decided to receive the shipment details of the item that is being paid for by customers before the funds can be released to the seller. Hmm. That is why you need to ship the item once you get the payment confirmation email. This is the email that he sent. Right. And get back to PayPal with the shipment tracking number for them to verify once it is done. And Jason's, again, posing as Liz, says, I mean that my PayPal account has no funds from you. It just shows that I requested money. The emails you sent didn't come from PayPal. They came from a website that isn't PayPal. Plus the transaction ID on PayPal from the money request and your fake email didn't match either. Hmm. Nice try, right? <laughs> so Jason terminates this. Now, I did a little bit of looking around on this. Okay. There is no escrow service like PayPal has. Hmm. PayPal says they have buyer and seller protection. Hmm. Uh, and that if you if you make a payment and somebody doesn't send you the item, then you can't really get that money back, but you can file a dispute hmm. and be made whole. Right. I don't know how PayPal does that, working against fraud. Yeah. Well, remember, we've seen other versions of scams with PayPal where someone will send you something that is not the item you ordered. Right. Just so they have that shipping receipt. Mm -hmm. And that makes it a lot harder to get your money back from PayPal because the scammers can go to PayPal and say, no, no, we totally shipped them something. Look, here's the receipt from UPS or FedEx or whoever. Right. Yeah. And and I don't know if that's just a delaying tactic, but PayPal actually has on their site, it says what was delivered was not what was promised. Ah, okay. So that's good. That's you have, good. You have that option. Right. 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 Uh, in fact, they'll even satisfy a dispute if you ordered five of something and only got four of them. Huh. And the seller refuses to send you another one. Okay. First thing PayPal says on their website, it's, is it's best for you and the seller to work things out before contacting <laughs> us. Don't bring us into this mess. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I find that a little bit swarmy on PayPal's part, really. Right. I mean, well, but yeah. in truth, you know, you should you should say to the seller, hey, you said you were going to send me four of them. I only got five. And the seller might very well go, that's an honest mistake. Let me send you the fifth one right now. Sure. You know, you have like 60 days to file a grievance or, or, or a claim in this matter. Hmm. But PayPal does not have an escrow service, which is interesting. Hmm. This guy wanted to convince Liz that PayPal does have an escrow service. Yeah. And yeah. he was trying to get a free, very expensive bracelet. Right. Right. But uh, thanks to our listener, Jason. <laughs> yep. Well, and also the woman who was who had the bracelet, she did the right thing. She slowed right. down. Yep. She checked with a friend. Something didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And saved herself a lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah, because she never would have gotten that bracelet back. I mean, that would no, have just gone no. to somebody who had been waiting outside the address, taking the package delivery from whoever sent it. Yeah. That's why they wanted a tracking number, mm -hmm. is so that they know when it's going to arrive. And they don't live at this address that they sent. The address is probably the address of some innocent person or some company. Mm -hmm. And they just stand outside and go, oh, is that a package for XYZ? And the FedEx guy goes, yeah, here, take 
Take it. Right, exactly. I'm XYZ. Right. <laughs> what, what, a, what a crazy random happenstance. I happen to be out here. Yep. Yeah. Thanks to our listener, Jason, for sending that in. My story this week comes from the uh, FBI. This is from the IC3, their... uh, The Internet Crime Complaint Center. That's right. The FBI issued a public service announcement. You know, Joe, I have to say, you are a parent. I am a parent. Yes. Every parent's worst nightmare is the thought of one of your kids going missing. Yep. Right? Absolutely. And I think... Still keeps me up, and my kids don't even live with me. (laughs) Right. They're out of the house, and you still worry about where they are. Yep. No, it's just the way of things. I remember one time uh, our youngest son uh, went missing for a matter of minutes but at the beach, but it felt like days. Right. <laughs> you know, we just we just couldn't put an eye on him. And There uh, is no place worse to have a missing kid than the beach. Yeah. My daughter chased a seagull down the beach once and <laughs> terrified her mother and right. me. Was, yeah, and, this was similar. He, he had a heart—so, you know, he was down at the seashore with his brother— and, you know, we were sort of camped out a little farther up on the beach and they, his brother came back to, you know, I don't know what, get a soda or who knows, you know. And, and we we're like, well, where's your younger brother? He's like, oh, uh, oh, I don't know. It's like, you were supposed to be watching him. Oh, uh, oh, sorry. So, you know, anyway, so we go looking for the younger one, can't find him. Panic ensues, of course. Right, yeah. <laughs> but but you know what? He did the right thing. He had he couldn't find his way back to us, so he just went over to the lifeguard station and sat down in front of the lifeguard station and just figured, well, if they come, if they're going to look for me. They're going to come check with the lifeguard first. And right. sure enough, that's what happened. There he was. Happy ending. Yes. Anyway, long story short, I know too late. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the IC three is talking about. Scammers who are using social media to target victims of missing persons cases. So a family has an incident of a missing person. Let's say, I don't know, a teenager runs away or or, or someone, just anyone, anyone in the family goes missing. And a family uh, who is in great distress over this, of course, they start putting the word out on social media that this person is missing. If you know anything, please contact us so on and so forth. Uh, and these scammers, they monitor social media for these things, and then they follow up with the families and demand a ransom for the missing person. Ugh. And the ransom is uh, typically between five dollars and $10,000. Uh, the FBI noted that for some reason $7,000 is a common ask huh. of, of these bad folks. I, I don't know why, but there's that. Um, and they highlight several cases here where... Folks had reported someone missing. They'd reached out on social media to ask for help. Someone contacted them demanding a ransom, and it turns out the person was not actually missing. Time passed, and the person was found unharmed, had right. been you know, visiting a friend. Who knows what? These, Most of these things end that way, actually. It, yes, yes, exactly. So one thing that the FBI wanted to do, obviously they want folks to be aware of these scams, uh, and, you know, we're doing our part here to <laughs> help spread the word about that. Yes. Um, but they also said that if anyone reaches out to you for something like this, please contact your local FBI field office. Right. And they say, obviously, keep all the documentation, emails, text messages, take screen captures, all that kind of stuff. Don't delete anything before law enforcement's able to review it. But they also make a really good point. They, they say it's important that you tell them everything about the online encounters, even though some of it might be embarrassing for the parent or the missing person. 
you know, especially if everything turns out to be fine. And I could easily imagine being embarrassed that you nearly fell for a scam like this. Right. Well, I don't know that I would be embarrassed by that. I mean, you are in a distressed emotional state. Yeah. We frequently talk about the distressed emotional state these guys try to induce. Mm-hmm, right. Well, mm-hmm. why not skip that step and already hit somebody <laughs> right. in a distressed emotional state? <laughs> right. Right. Who's not thinking clearly? Oh uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. And and start asking them for money. Now we've heard other stories a while ago about kidnapping scams where somebody just calls you out of the blue and says we've kidnapped your daughter mm-hmm. and they have someone in the background screaming. Right. Which is also equally despicable as this. I mean. I mean. I, ugh. I'd like yeah. to get my hands on these people, Dave. Um, <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, it's it's so hard. They target these people. My point is, I would not be embarrassed if, if, about this. I would not. I try not to feel embarrassed about it. Yeah, right. I understand. Maybe you do feel that way, but try not to. You you have been targeted by some slime ball. Yeah, yeah. And law enforcement are they're they're going to be empathetic. They're not going right. to shame you or you know tell you everything you should have done better to you know th- that's that's not going to happen. The more information you can give them, the more likely it is that they'll be able to connect the dots and hopefully uh, bring justice to these folks. Right. Yeah. So uh, we'll have a link to that. It's actually a public service announcement from the FBI. Uh, Interesting read. It's a short read, but has a few examples of uh, some of the things they're tracking. Uh, So that is my story for this week. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Reddit user Gil Firkin. They were targeted by a crypto scammer who promised outrageous returns. Um, (laughs) So why don't you read the part of the scammer and I'll read the part of Gil Firkin. All right. Hey. Hey. How are you doing? Okay. So many people now messaging me about investing. So many. Same here, Dorothy. Where are you located? Good old U.S. of A. You mean United States of America. Yes. Okay. Same here. I got connected to you from Tron Group. Are you currently investing into that? So Tron is a coin. There's a crypto coin called Tron right now. Ah. Right. Just a little bit of background. Mm -hmm. I joined the group because my grandson sent me some of this Tron stuff. He said I should learn how to be more up to date. He is such a good boy. That's nice. How much worth of Tron do you have in your possession? How do I check how much it's worth? What platform do you have your Tron? Log to your wallet where you've got the Tron. Make a screenshot. Let me see. Understood? Wait, I'm talking to someone else that says they can get me larger returns. I want to get the most I can. This is what I mean. And they sent a picture of the wallet of a of a Tron coin wallet. And he's trying to get uh, Dorothy to send the information. Mm. He goes on. How much can that returns be? Yeah, 10 times my money back. Though that's poor. It's better than what you offered. What did I offer? I never offered anything to you yet. Was trying to know how much you had in your Tron wallet. So when did I offer anything to you? Oh, I'm sorry. That must have been one of the other 30 people that messaged me. I'm so confused right now. It's impossible to keep this all together. So this guy is offering you 10 times your money daily, returns daily, but have you thought about making that money every one hour? (laughs) That's what I have to offer you. So you know how much you'll be making every one hour? 10 times returns on your investment every one hour. (laughs) Wow. Let me do some maths to confirm. 10 times per hour, how long can I invest? Like, will you let it grow if I leave it with you for a little bit? Oh, yes. It's a long-term investment. I'll let it grow till you're ready to withdraw. You'll know how much you'll be making. So wait one sec. So how much do you have to invest? Okay, so if I invest 
$500 with you and leave it with you for nine hours, that will be a return of $1.6 trillion. <laughs> are you able to deposit every cryptocurrency into my wallet because you are promising more than the entire market capitalization? Yes. <laughs> Dude, bloody hell. How do you plan to do that? It's $45,000, not $1.6 trillion. What did you calculate? 10 times per hour for nine hours. That's $500 times 10 to the ninth power. 500 times 10 in nine hours is $45,000. Not even close. Did you study maths at all? I must admit, it makes it easier to see through the scams when your grasp of basic maths is so bad. 500 times 10 is what? You said per hour, so it's 500 times 10 for the first hour, then times 10 for the second hour. Yes. Then times 10 for the third hour. Answer my question. Which for nine hours is 500 times 10 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 times 10. 500 times 10 is what? For the first hour, I start with $500 and I end up with $5,000. Then that $5,000 invested goes to $50,000. Okay, now listen. You've invested $500, and in an hour, you've got $5,000. One hour, you have five k You said 10 times in an hour. How much money do I have at the start of the second hour? $5,000? 10 times returns in an hour is $5,000. Right. Then you take that $5,000 and multiply it by 10. Only for the first hour... Then the second hour is two times. Listen to me. I love this. <laughs> She's starting to frustrate this guy, and it's really great. <laughs> and the returns decrease 10 times per hour means the amount goes up by 10 times per hour. You can't say that the second hour you're investing the 5K you made in the first hour. This is amazing. Your 500 is what runs the trade. So after your first 5K, it compounds automatically with your 500 initial deposit. Please don't delete this chat because YouTube is going to love it. And gives you another 5K, which is 10K in two hours. So I don't know where you're calculating yours from. Oh my God, I can barely breathe. This is the best. You need to read up on compound interest. You make profit from your invested amount. Not simple interest. Do you even know what you're saying? Yes, I do. That's why it's funny. I don't think so. I know. That's what makes this even funnier. You invested 500 and in one hour, you make 5K. Yep, then you have $5,000 invested, not 500. If I invested 5,000, how much would you pay me at the end of an hour? And that's where the conversation seems to end. <laughs> I think at this point in time, the guy probably just got tired of this and yeah. realized he was getting jerked around by this user. But this is good work. You kept somebody busy for a little bit. They thought they had you on the hook. I don't know if this person actually has 30 other scam attempts going on at the same time, but I would not be surprised. Mm -mm. Yeah. Good to eat up some of their time. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Thank you very much for sharing that on Reddit. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. We would love to hear from you. If you have uh, something you'd like for us to share on air, you can send it to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Robert Capps. He is from New Data Security. And our conversation focused on what businesses can do to bolster their protection against tax fraud. Here's my conversation with Robert Capps. The interesting piece about last tax season is that they pushed the date out so long. And so that allowed some fraudsters to impersonate more consumers uh, before tax date. And as consumers, a lot of them waited till uh, I think it was July to, to file taxes. There were a lot more opportunities to impersonate them and, and file false returns. 
and that did happen. Also last year around COVID, we saw a lot of data breach, a lot of loss of consumer information from various web properties around the internet. And that information also fueled those IRS return scams and things like unemployment scams around the U.S. For folks who aren't familiar with it, can you give us the basics of of how a, a tax fraud scam works? Consumer or commercial, it has everything to do with uh, getting a tax return filed in the name of an organization or a person prior to them being able to file. And um, those filings tend to be focused on creating a, a tax refund, so a ba- mm-hmm. refundable balance with the IRS, and then giving banking credentials to the IRS to transfer that refund into a malicious actor's account, you know, a cyber criminal, a, a fraudster. Once that money is in their account, They go through the normal process of washing that money and and sending it to money mules and then getting it out of the country or getting it into the hands of the the fraudster themselves. And then the the unwitting uh, taxpayer or business comes behind and files their taxes as they normally would. And the IRS comes back and says, hey, not so fast. We've already processed your return. Yep. And then the individual, the organization is on the hook to prove they didn't. In previous Hmm. years, that was very difficult as tax fraud or return fraud has become a more common occurrence. The IRS now has better mechanisms for dealing with those false returns and, and, and helping consumers resolve those issues. Now, of course, with COVID, staff aren't necessarily in the office or there are fewer staff in the office, and that makes it harder to get the kind of attention um, that you need. Now, they're still there to help. They're just a lot more people needing help and fewer people doing the work. So you have to be patient, unfortunately. What sort of things can folks do? I mean, are, are there the equivalent of you know, multi-factor authentication for filing taxes? Yeah, so um, going and making sure that uh, you create your online IRS accounts um, and you've got a login and password associated with your social security number or tax player ID number on file with the IRS helps tremendously. There are mechanisms for uh, putting pins and other authenticators on your returns that must be known in order to get your hands on future returns or your your past copies of your past returns. Um, It's not too difficult to order transcripts of someone's previous returns to get things like adjusted gross income and other information from those accounts. Um, The IRS has made it harder over the last couple of years to get uh, get that information, but it was rather simple in previous tax years uh, to get Mm. that information. And that makes it really easy to do things like um, online tax filings for consumer. What about for businesses? Are, Are there any things that they should be on the lookout for? I think that any business that has employees is potentially a target for cyber criminals to get information about those consumers, uh, their employees, that they could file taxes on behalf of. That information disclosure risk is there. And so people in the HR team, the accounts payable team, whoever's preparing the tax documents themselves needs to be diligent that the replacement W-2s or 1099s, that those are being sent to the legitimate person, not to someone who shouldn't have access to them. On the other side of the coin, corporate tax fraud is an issue and getting information from an employee, either through social engineering or getting malware onto their computers in the office, can create all kinds of havoc, not just a tax time, but also attacking bank balances. And you see unrequested international wire transfers out of corporate accounts to third-party accounts in another country. 
that can't be recovered. Those things are all problems when, when we talk about uh, the corporate side of the, you know, the, the fraud, when companies are defrauded by uh, these same individuals. At the end of the day, all schemes come back to some level of value being taken out of the system by a fraudster. And mm. taxes are one cover for it, but they're all the basic, the same basic confidence scams. You know, convincing someone in an accounts payable role or, or, or a controller role or something like that to either provide credentials to allow transactions or to trick them into performing transactions on behalf of the fraudster. You know, we, we often talk about um, third-party risk, and uh, it strikes me that as an individual taxpayer, but certainly as a business, it, it's probably likely that I have engaged with someone to help me with my taxes. Uh, yeah. Certainly here, here, here in the U.S., uh, I think it's fair to say that they're complicated enough that you need a, a level of expertise that your average person does not have. Are there things that we should be checking with our providers on? Are there questions we should be asking them to make sure that they're doing their due diligence? If you're dealing with an agency, uh, a physical organization that is processing your taxes, you drop off the packet, they hand you your taxes, the end you sign and they get mailed in uh, or even electronically uh, delivered on your behalf. Um, those organizations really need to be taking security into account where, where taxes in, you know, more than a decade ago were all on paper tax return fraud result, you know, was the result of breaking into someone's office and stealing boxes of paperwork. Now that's all digital. And so whoever's preparing your taxes or assisting with your taxes really needs to take computer network security into account. And that isn't always the case, right? Because some, some folks are not as computer literate as we might want them or expect them to be given their position. And so, you know, having a conversation with your tax preparer about their, their cybersecurity practices, understanding, you know, <laughs> whether they're engaging a corporate service or a commercial service to help them uh, do that, or they just happen to be hiring their, their, their nephew to come in and run antivirus on their machines. Very right. <laughs> different risks involved with those two positions. And just understanding who you're dealing with and, and what their technical capacity is for protecting your information. Organizations that have a focus around this will probably have a security policy. They'll probably have some other policies they provide you when you sign up for their services. Um, and, and, and if you don't get any assurances that they're providing you know, secure storage and processing of your information, ask before you provide. What do you do with this data? How do you store it? What do you do when you're done with my taxes? Really key questions to ask of any provider. What about the, the IRS themselves? Has there been an evolution on, on their part in terms of recognizing that this is shifting online and so the, the velocity of potential losses has, has increased? Yeah, I think they do. And the fact that uh, they now have people that are dedicated to investigating and resolving these issues shows a recognition that there's a problem. Each tax year, we see them become more and more sophisticated with how they verify a consumer's identity during a digital submission of taxes. It's still not perfect, but I'm a big fan of good as <laughs> as an alternative <laughs> to waiting till everything's perfect. Um, right. And, and the, in this situation, it's getting to be good enough for most uses and for, for protecting most consumers. The issue isn't actually at the IRS. The issue is that, you know, the Internet is awash in consumer data and a lot of the data points that are used to it, uh, authenticate a consumer online have already been stolen or available in commercial data services if you have a credit card. So right. 
with that being the case, moving towards more of a deterministic consumer human identity online will help this problem immensely. But there's a lot of work yet to be done to get to that point. And so we're seeing organizations like the IRS using commercial identity verification tools. We're seeing them adopt things like pre-registered pins and registering for online accounts that once they're initiated, no one else can access unless they take them over, which is a much harder process. There's just a lot of things they're now taking into account when it comes to securing these tax returns and the funds coming from them uh, that they yeah. weren't doing before. So yeah, they're, they're taking it, they're absolutely taking it seriously. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, do you, I mean, do you have any insights? You know, for example, um, you know, you are uh, there at New Data. You're a Mastercard mm-hmm. company, and uh, yep. certainly the credit card industry have have led the way when it comes to uh, the automated detection of fraud. Right. Um, is is that technology that we that we assume the IRS is implementing as well? I don't have a positive. Um, <laughs> knowledge yeah. of, of, of what they've deployed because rightfully so they don't want to talk about those things. Right, right, right. <laughs> we we could all hope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know what I can see from outside from from a you know a concerned taxpayer who's who's focused in on this space is that yeah. they appear to be looking for telltale signs of fraud. They've got mm-hmm. a they've got a large corpus of data that they can analyze to understand what are patterns of malicious activity or potentially malicious activity, and detecting future iterations of those patterns isn't out of the realm of the, their technical capabilities. So my assumption is they are doing those things because it sounds like they're catching more and more of this stuff as it's filed versus waiting for the consumer to catch it when they go to file their own taxes. Right. Um, so. I assume they're doing things that they should be doing here <laughs> to make this stuff work. I mean, it's in their best interest as well, right? I mean, it they is. want to stall. They want it to go as smoothly as possible. Yeah, but I, I think that the thing that we need to keep in mind is that when we were dealing with financial fraud, because this is really what this is, it's, it's diversion mm-hmm. of taxpayer resources to a fraudster. Once that money's gone, it's gone. Um, those are tax dollars we've all put into the system through our payroll taxes and income taxes and all, you know all, all the things that we pay in our daily lives to help support the U.S. government. Um, those dollars going to a fraudster mean they don't go to the right consumer who be- who they belong to, and they still have to be made up to that consumer. So it's it, it's an aggregate loss to the country as a whole and all taxpayers. And that's the thing that I think most of us need to, to keep in mind. This is not a faceless crime of, of just money being stolen from the government. These are our dollars that are being stolen. Um, and so, you know, we, we all have a vested interest in making sure that the system is is as effective and protected as it can be, because there are better things we'd be spending that money on. All right, Joe, what do you think? Dave, last year they pushed out the tax due date. Wasn't that great? Pushed out to <laughs> July. <laughs> That gave me a lot of time to come up with my tax bill. Uh, okay, okay, <laughs> which was great. Okay, <laughs> uh, but the the downside is it gave it gave scammers the an increased opportunity, a larger time window to run these fraudulent tax returns. Yeah, more people need help, and fewer people are helping at the IRS because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it's just going to take longer to get things. Uh, Robert says, be patient. I guess we have to be patient. One thing you can do is get yourself an identity protection pin with the IRS. If you're going to file electronically or you're going to get a return, get that IP pin. If you're listening in the car, wait till where you're going, go get an IP pin. (laughs) It's very important. It it stops a lot of this stuff in its tracks. Yeah. 
Robert said it's not too difficult to order transcripts of someone's previous returns. It's harder, but when the government's dealing with people, they have to provide services to everybody, Mm -hmm. right? And they have to make it as simple as possible to do that. Right. So because you have varying degrees of capability among the population and everybody's entitled to these services, right? Like, hey, I need the records of my taxes from the past five years. And the IRS has to say, okay, well, as soon as we verify who you are, we can give those to you. Right. And that verification process has to be doable by everybody. Right. Right. Right? They can't just serve folks who have PhDs. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So it leaves open a vulnerability, if you will, that's Mm. necessary by design. Uh, you know, so I, I mean, I understand this is a tough problem. Yeah. You have to balance the security with accessibility. Absolutely. That is one of the constant tug of wars or tugs of war. Is it tug of, no, it's tug of wars. Uh, <laughs> go on in the security world. Tax fraud is one of the big reasons that bad guys go after employee data. Um, I've heard stories of HR people being targeted by scammers pretending to be the CEO of the company and just going, I need all the personal information of all of our employees right now. I'm working on closing some kind of business finance uh, to to extend because we're running out of money and the person sends it and the the data it's a data breach now right. these bad guys have enough information to file fraudulent tax returns mm-hmm. uh, from one email one phishing email mm-hmm. two points that Robert made in passing that I want to amplify first off he said an interesting statement that people used to have to break into buildings to steal tax records but now they can do it over the internet mm-hmm. <laughs> and that brought this to my attention this is not a new crime And it's one of the things that our uh, forensics professor, Dr. Leschke, says. He says that the internet doesn't really create new crimes. It just provides a new way to commit old crimes, Hmm. right? So that's really what we're looking at here. These fraudulent tax returns aren't new. They're just more prevalent now. Yeah. And now they're a bigger drain on on the treasury. So I thought that was kind of a subtle point that, that Robert made that should be amplified. We're not dealing with new crimes. And the other point he made is you don't need to get perfect. You just need to get better. Hmm. Uh, ne- this is like never let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right, right. right. Uh, if, if you can do something to improve your security, do it. Uh, you know, as practitioners, we tend to say, well, that still makes you vulnerable. Like adding SMS two-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that turned on and it's the best that your the provider offers, use it. Even yeah. though it's not perfect. Yeah, it's like adding a deadbolt to your front door lock. Right, you know, exactly. It's... it's- And yeah, just maybe your neighbor doesn't have one and that makes you less likely to be targeted. Exactly. Yeah. Robert makes a great point. They're not stealing money from the government. They're stealing money for us, Mm. from us. This is not, this means that it's money that will not get spent on services uh, and it only increases the national debt. It could be used elsewhere, Mm -hmm. right? For better purposes than padding the pockets of some scammer. (laughs) Remember when it comes to the IRS, the IRS will never call you They will never threaten to have you arrested. They will never demand that you make payment via any method other than writing a check payable to the United States Treasury. They do not demand green dot cards, credit card payments. There are no gift cards, no cash in an envelope, and no cryptocurrency. Right, right. Right? Yeah. I mean, you can pay your tax returns by credit card, but you actually have to use a third-party service to do that. Hmm. Um, But they will never demand that you do it that way. Mm -hmm. The IRS will send you a letter. And if you ignore those, they will send you a treasury agent with a badge. Right, right, right. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't come to that. <laughs> yes. Pay attention to the letters from the IRS. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Robert Caps from New Data Security for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. 
We want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.